Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to a Believe podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstamm, and this is the Guitar Life. Today, my special guest is an all-time great on the bass guitar, Mr. Jimmy Haslip. Jimmy Haslip has played with the who's who of the guitar world. Not only that, he's credited with 190 recording projects as the producer. Woo! I truly hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you. That's it. That's pretty wild. Yeah, so... uh... Can I just ask you one quick thing before we get started here, even though we are getting started? Um, That's okay. You said you were in the middle of a session just before we uh, uh, connected yeah. here. What were you doing? Well, I'm working on a, um, a guitar player's record. He lives up here. His name is Johnny Valentino. And uh, I've known him for a long time. He's a, he, I met him actually through a piano player named Alan Pasqua. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, yeah. Alan played with Alan Halsworth and sure in Tony Williams' New Lifetime. Yeah, he's a big he, he's a big I, hitter. He is, uh, <laughs> and I've known Alan for <laughs> I've known Alan for a long time. Um, uh, and he introduced me to Johnny Valentino, really cool guitar player, lives up here. Uh, and he's, he's also a composer. Um, and so due to the situation that we're in now, COVID-19. Yeah. Yummy. Whoopee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he contacted me. He decided he wanted to do an 18 project and, uh, wanted me to play bass on it. Uh, there's a guy named, um, uh, I believe his name is Clayton Cameron. Uh, he's a drummer. He played with Tony Bennett, nice jazz drummer. And uh, Alan Pasqua is actually playing piano and some stuff. And Johnny on guitar and myself on, on bass. And a young trumpet player who I, I wish I knew his name, but um, he's actually a student at USC. And it's one, and it's one of... Uh, Alan Pasqua's students, because Alan's a, a professor at USC. So you so, guys, you guys are able to get together in the same room and conduct a regular recording session, or are you doing this virtually? It's all virtual. Oh, okay. So I'm getting I'm getting tracks from Johnny um, as he puts drums and guitar. Mostly, I get these tracks with drums and guitar and and trumpet. Wow! So he gets that done, and I and then I just play to those tracks, and then I think he 
sends them over to Alan Pasqua, and Alan puts piano on it. Alan's think, got a beautiful Steinway. Do you think there's going to be an asterisk behind every uh, re, uh, project now that's going to say COVID era on it? I mean, like, isn't it <laughs> weird? Could. It could, couldn't it? It just yeah. se- it just seems like every everything is uh, is affected well, in the music in the music world. Everything is affected by this uh, restraints that we have been put on us. You know, it's, yeah. Well, yeah. Every, everything in the entire world is affected. I think there'll be asterisks flying everywhere. Oh yeah. Uh, the baseball season, basketball season. 2019 BC. You know, 2019 yeah. before COVID, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, here, here's so, an, here's another. Uh, that's great. Here's another. I mean, you seem to be keeping busy, uh, which is great. And uh, you've been doing a lot of work for a Blue Canoe, this uh, digital label that was set up by Joseph Moore. Could you talk? Yes. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that all got started? How you connected with him? Yeah. Um, well, I, I produced a, a guitar player down in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, I knew the musicians that were going to be involved in the project. There was a drummer named Sonny Emery. Sonny played with Earth, Wind, Fire, and David Sanborn, Eric Clapton. And I did a, a bunch of work with Sonny, with Sanborn, and with Jeff Lorber Fusion. So Sonny was on drums. Uh, a really cool piano player named Randy Hexter, who I did a 10 pet project with um, out of Atlanta. Um, it also had uh, Dave Weckl guesting on some tracks. Um, so it was a it was a fun band. I went, I flew down to Atlanta, and I recorded uh, a bunch of tracks with uh, uh, this guitar player named Anthony Papa Michael, who was a session player in Atlanta. He played on a lot of the R and B stuff down there, like um, Whitney Houston and Patty Austin. Did a lot of rap sessions, and he was also a really good engineer. Um, and so, uh, and, and he also he also played with Andre uh, Three Thousand. I don't know if you know who that is, but uh, he's he's a very interesting uh, R&B pop singer. Um, Doesn't sound like and, he'd hire me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, so I went down there to work on this project, and in the course of doing that, I, I, we were having lunch or something, a lunch break, and I was talking to Randy Hepster, the piano player, and he said, hey, you, you're producing a lot of stuff. And I said, yeah, I've been pretty busy on that end. And he said, you know, if you're interested, I have a friend who has a small record company. And they started out in Atlanta, but he has since moved with his family to Las Vegas. Um, but if you're interested, I'll give you his contact info. So I said, sure. And I contacted uh, him and ended up being this gentleman named Joseph Moore. Um, we hit it off. He happens to be a bass player, so we had a lot in common in that world. And um, we talked about a few things. I sent him a few things I was producing at the time and a couple of things that I found through a friend um, who had some projects he was working on, and he sent me some cool things, and he was just going to throw them out on the Facebook or something. So 
I, I sent Joseph Moore all these things, and he he loved them all and said, "Let's let me let me release these." And I said, "Great!" You know. So from that, that's three years ago. I ended up uh, actually becoming his A and R guy, <laughs> and I've I've brought I've brought at least thirty projects to him over the last three years, and he's put out at least twenty two or twenty three of them. So. Wow, that's productive. Yeah, quite a lot of stuff. Yeah, and, and yeah. it's not always stuff I'm producing. It's stuff that I find, and and uh, I think you know at least needs a home. You know. Yeah, at least needs a, a forum, right? Yeah. Um, so, so what? What really strikes me is the uh, allegiance and the loyalty towards jazz. Uh, Moore has got a lot of. Uh, you know, pride, I think, in, in being a jazz, uh, you know, uh, promoter uh, yes. ver- versus versus pop music. Like, I was going to ask you, you know, even before you hooked up with Blue Canoe, uh, you've been pr- producing for a long time uh, since you led up your busy schedule with the Yellow Jackets, right? So, but what about pop groups? Have you done anything that I might have, uh, you know, heard? heard that uh, maybe people don't know that you were the guy behind the scenes uh, rather than all this jazz? I've produced a lot of different little things like this singer named Marilyn Scott. Oh, um, I've heard of her. I, yeah. I produced, um, I, I co-produced uh, eight of her records and some of them were co-produced with George Duke and and also with Russell Ferrante. Right. And, and they were like R&B pop records for the most part, although they did have very progressive um, uh, elements to, to the record. Okay. Uh, well, you probably hired really great musicians to be you know, the session guys, so it would always turn out a little, <laughs> a little more sophisticated, right? Yeah, the music it was it was R and B pop, but but with sophistication, and of course I you know. And in Los Angeles, as you know, is a, a a quite a large contingency of of uh, wonderful musicians that reside here, including yourself. Oh, so thank you. I wasn't asking. Well. <laughs> I'm not doing this interview just to hear you say things like that. Okay, but no, thanks. <laughs> well, you and I together, so I know we, I know what. You well, know well, before about. we talk about that, because I didn't want to yeah. bring that up, because we can joke around about that, because it was a lot of fun. But uh, it was so. So uh, you you got your start in New York. I mean, you, you're you know, you're, you're out of the East Coast, and uh, yes. Uh, what what made you uh, come to the West Coast? Because usually there's this you know pride you know in the. You know the, the the East Coast sort of like approach to playing, and then there's a West Coast approach to right. playing. There, that's probably pretty. Uh, you know, there's that's a controversial kind of subject right there uh, for musicians, really. So what what brought you to the West Coast? You know, well, you know, I, and I never really got involved in that controversy. I was <laughs> more or less all about just playing music with people. You know, and it didn't matter where they came from. You know? Yeah, but how? How? What well, brought you out here? I mean, what what made you come out here? Well, uh, it's it's a fairly long story, but I'll try to I'll try to uh, cut it short. Uh, you know, give give you a little synopsis of okay. what happened. But I left I left New York around 1970, um, and I 
I went out to San Francisco. Is that a, uh, a buddy of mine lived out there, moved out there. I played with him in a little band in, um, out on Long Island where I grew up. And he moved to San Francisco when we graduated and he opened up a health food restaurant. So he said, if you ever come out this way, look me up. And so I, I saw that as an opportunity. I was playing in this top 40 band and it got kind of boring. Um, to some extent, the band was great. The guys in the band were great, but we were playing these venues that were like, you know, what they call meat markets. Okay. Know, okay. All, Boredom. All these people just start trying to, you thought uh, you thought their you you thought your music uh, was more worthy than the boredom that you were experiencing. So that's what brought you yeah. out here. <laughs> yes, but for the most part, you know, I was taking music pretty seriously at the time. I was eighteen, and uh, so I, I ended up thinking, let's see what's going on out in San Francisco. That's an interesting place, and there's a lot of music there. So uh, I ventured out. Looked up my buddy. I ended up um, staying at his place for, for quite a while up in, in a beautiful part of Northern California, um, an area called Russian River. Oh, um, I know. Yeah, sure. I've been up there a few times. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I lived in a little town called Gurneyville for a few months right. you know, with, with this buddy of mine. Eating health food. A couple food. of buddies. Eating health, food. Eating health food. Eating, eating health food. Yep. And uh, enjoying, you know, there was a redwood forest there. I mean, it was, you know, nature was <laughs> nature was was abound. It was everywhere around. Beautiful place to be, and uh, definitely, uh, as as you might think, a, a breath of fresh air from being in like New in, York. Yeah, and, sure. And, Okay. This isn't this isn't what I expected. You know, it's like I expected. Well, I was playing with these guys that were doing all these uh, Charlie Parker covers, and I got sick of playing bop. And God, man, I was you know, the jazz clubs were full of smoke, and I just said I got to get out there and get some fresh air on the West Coast and meet some new people. <laughs> it's not like that's, that, is it? <laughs> that's 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 it. I came out here. And uh, well, to San Francisco, and I spent a couple of years up there. Okay, just kind of bouncing around, playing with a lot of different guys, mostly blues and folk. Music. Okay, yeah, and I, I, I loved it. I, I well, that's where Robin up, Ford's uh, from, you know. San Francisco. That's where Robin Ford's from. He's from uh, Ukiah, right? Which is right up yeah. near the Russian River. Yeah. Yeah, and I. And I didn't meet him till '79, so I didn't meet him till like eight years later. Oh know? wow! But anyway, okay. But but uh, so I stayed up in San Francisco for a while, and eventually I ended up in New Orleans. <laughs> uh, a, a friend of mine who was a drummer was in New Orleans playing in a rock band, a cover band primarily, but they were doing they were going in the studio and playing. You know, recording some original music. Sure. So, so I flew down to New Orleans, and I ended up playing in that band for a couple of years. Um, and then eventually, I ran into a drummer named Carmine Apice. I know who that is. Vanilla, yeah. vanilla Carmine, Fudge. Right, that's right. And yeah. Carmine said, hey man, what are you doing down here? He said, uh, you know, just trying to make a living. And he said, "Well, if you if you 
ever come out to L.A., look me up. And he gave me his contact info. So I looked at that as a possible interesting trip. So I rented a car, and uh, I was with this guitar player. We hooked up down in New Orleans. Pretty interesting guy named guy named Phil Brown. And yeah. Phil and I drove. We drove to Los Angeles, and we almost got signed uh, when we got here because Carmine hooked us up with a bunch of cool stuff, and we ended up being managed by uh, a management house called Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Farnoli. I know who they are. Yeah. I got they, to know they them. Managed, <laughs> they, managed, <laughs> they managed Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, they managed Little Feet. They managed... Miles Davis. Uh, actually, they managed um, Weather Report. Oh, that's right. It was the yeah, road Weather manager that worked for Miles Davis because when I was working with Denise Williams, he was the same... They gave us the road manager from the Miles band through Cavallo and Ruffalo, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's it was awesome. awesome. <laughs> oh, wow, boy. Yep. That's like a circus uh, or like a... Uh, actually, that's a typical kind of musician kind of like story that uh, really is great to hear how you kind of like had to ping pong across the United States to finally end up in... In, a, <laughs> in, in the, Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, good one. And, and, and I... Once I got out here, things started kind of cooking in a lot of different areas. I started doing a lot of session work, and I got some road, cool road gigs. I ended up touring with Harvey Mandel, who was a great sure. blues player from Chicago, and and we opened for Jeff Beck for, for a nice tour. Um, you you were Jeff playing Beck with R Roy Ayers too, right? Roy Ayers. And I, I did I did, uh, I did a, a a run, a touring run with Royers and Ubiquity. Right. And Flora uh, Pyramid Ayurto, um, Tommy Bolin. Yeah, Tommy um, Bolin. Yeah. You, were you with him when he passed away? Were you a band member at I, that particular time? Yes, I was. Oh, mm -hmm. That must that have was been. in Miami. And, and of all things, we were. Uh, uh, that band was also opening for Jeff Beck and the On Armour group. So. That must have been traumatic. Jeez, it was sorry. It was really, a tough, um, it was a tough thing to go through um, at that point. You know, I was twenty four, going on twenty five years old. And, right. You know, it was a real tragic, uh, yeah, tragic event. He's and so a, and a such really a great, bad day. Such a great musician. God, I he loved was, him. He was not only that; he was a really great guy. Um, a really terrific person, and um, I really liked him a lot. And uh, you know, as a young guy, you don't think anything like that's going to happen. You know, yeah, we're immortal at, at that age. Invincible. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. that happened, and um, and that was very sad. Um, but it was also eye-opening in a lot of ways, um, and. Let's get to this uh, where we met. It should be kind of fun to talk about to, on a lighter sure. note. Uh, I don't know how you got my number or how we got connected originally, right? But let's go to the party in yeah. Newport Beach, right? Because I want to make a, a, his, a historic comment right now <laughs> that might make you really like uh, get a good laugh out of you. 
at this party we were jamming at, right, Russell Frente was there. And you, across the stage or across the rehearsal, whatever it was we were talking about, you said, hey, I've been working on that line you showed me. And you played this real, you know, sophisticated funk, boom ba bum boom ba You know, you're working on this really, like, hip line. And you go, yeah, keep working on that. That's, yeah, we're going to get together and we're going to... I think that was the beginning of what you guys were going to do as the Yellow Jackets before you guys had your first album out, if I'm not mistaken. I'm thinking, or, you know, maybe I'm a little, you know, screwed up in my timeline. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, because <laughs> Russ Russ had written that song, and it was a, it was technically challenging to play. Yeah, a song called Imperial Strut. Yeah, I remember you. You're, you're you're like you know, I was setting. <laughs> you didn't even want to play. Actually, you just wanted to keep working on that part. I guess I needed to. I needed to. <laughs> it was a difficult baseline. Oh, that was a. But, that was an honor to be there for that because I can always say, "Hey, I knew those guys uh, when they were just getting it together." We yeah. were just getting it together. That's, yeah, that's absolutely right. And Russ had written that song in Alaska of all places. I've been on there. A gig. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've all been to Alaska, and he he was playing a gig with Jim Pepper, a saxophonist. Okay, yeah, right. And I he, remember he him. Had he had some downtime, and he wrote that song, and then that was a song that we recorded on the very first Yellow Jackets record. Wow! <laughs> I haven't talked. You were there. I haven't talked <laughs> to anybody or even brought that to mind since then. So that was like uh, forty-five years ago, or something like that. At least. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. Don't put an. Uh, so I had just hooked, see. I had just hooked up with Robin Ford. Okay. Who who put the band together? So Robin and I met um, and spent a little time working on some music together. And then he said he had this piano player coming down from San Jose, and that was Russ Ferrante. So when you and I hooked up and we wanted to do some gigs. I, I introduced you to Russ, and then we we played with Russ. Now, now was that was that Bill Berg on drums? No, it was the guy that uh, I I've always tried to remember his name, but he died in Manila. You know, somebody came up behind him. And, oh, that was Chip. Chip, right? Chip, Chip Cipulo. 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 How do you say it? Last name? Cipulo. He, you know, that guy was one of my favorite drummers. That guy he was, was great. so good. I just loved and him. And so Chip. Chip and I played a bunch of gigs in New York. That's where I met Chip. He was from Long Island as well. Right. And when I came out here, at one point he contacted me and he said, how is it out there? And I said, it's pretty groovy, you know. (laughs) Think about coming out. So he, he flew out to check it out. And I ended up playing some gigs with him here in Los Angeles, including playing with you. Because, um, you know, I don't know if you remember, but you and I hooked up with, you hooked me up with Bill Berg. Wow. And we went to your, we went, I think, to your uncle's 
yeah. studio. You yeah. Know, was it? Um, and Chris Caswell, uh, the, the keyboard player, he uh, was the uh, director for the Paul Williams Orchestra. He was the keyboard guy. And he and I, um, we were in another band with uh, the guys from the Chuck Mangione uh, band. I know it was James Bradley. And uh, I can't think of the bass player's name, but his mother was Via Red, the sax player. Uh, anyway, so Chuck Mangione's rhythm section and you guys were the guys I was kind of like uh, bouncing. Yeah, back. we were we were all playing. He, but Chris was from that band, yeah. Him. Chris was from that band, yeah. yeah and he, you know, much later, I I got, you know, I've I've known Bill Berg forever, but uh, just a few years back, I did a record with this uh, piano player. Uh, who I originally met when he was living in Miami. Um, and I played on one of his records. And then he moved to, like, uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Sure. And he asked me to come there to work on a new record just a couple of years ago. And he said, I, I found this drummer who moved to this area. And he's really great, and he's, his name is Bill Berg. <laughs> that guy's amazing. So I ended up Jeez. doing a trio record with Bill Berg and this piano player named Ray Lyon. Okay. And uh, and we did it in, the, in his private studio in, in Asheville, North Carolina. And Bill ended up so, in L.A.? How did Bill end up Bill, in L.A.? Gosh, you know, well, Bill's in North Carolina now. He's retired. But originally, so originally, if you recorded... Originally, he was in L.A. Oh, okay. Okay. When, yeah. when we played together, he was living here. And you know what his main gig was, right? Uh, he, no. was an, he was an illustrator for Disney. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, wow. he drew... He, he was a true he was artist. All those, like, like Snow White you know, cartoons. Sure. And, uh, he what? did all that kind of stuff. Well, I was working in uh, the guitar shop in Laguna Beach, and another illustrator from Disney um, was there, and he liked my deal that I gave him so much. He drew a cartoon of Mickey Mouse holding a guitar. He said, thanks for the deal, John. <laughs> and it was Mickey Mouse holding a guitar up in the air. So, and you know what was amazing about it? It's like it took him like three minutes, maybe four minutes, and it was the most detailed, absolute perfect, you know, Mickey Mouse uh, character. And the guitar. Oh, my God. The, the, art, the guy's artistry was just, so Bill must be amazing as, that's a, way, that's as an illustrator. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, let me ask you a personal uh, question. Um, what do you attribute? Can you still hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yes. What do you attribute? Um, you know, fav favoritism as a bass player. You know, why why do you think you're so popular amongst uh, guitar players? Um, what I mean, not not that they say they like me, not that kind of mentality, but you yourself, your personal approach to, you know, what it is that you do as a musician. I mean, what do, what do you suppose makes it uh, so uh, you're a, a go-to guy? Got any uh, any advice or comment about that? <laughs> well. Um, you know, I've been, as you, I've been doing this for a long time, so I've met a lot of people. Um, I love working with a variety of musicians. I've gotten very close to a lot of players and, um, 
you know, I had quite a serious um, laboratory, um, so to speak, in in being in the Yellow Jackets for 32 years, and um, basically co-producing all those records. It was 22 Yellow Jackets records. Yeah. So I kind of feel like I, I got a lot of experience <laughs> with all the with all the different aspects of making a record. You know, I was involved in composing. I was involved in arranging. Uh, obviously, uh, performance, and I was involved in coordination. Um, a lot of times, you know, um, when we brought in outside musicians to guest with us, uh, percussionists. Sure. Um, all the intangibles. All the in- yeah, all yeah. Those, intangibles. You know, uh, booking studios, uh, um, hooking up with engineers, um, the mixing, mastering, you know, all the different aspects. They say a great leader pays attention to detail. So what you're talking about is the ability to guide someone through all that. So say a guitar player wants to, uh, you know, do an album like I would. Uh, they hire you to come in because uh, you, you're a man that pays attention to detail. So we get the job done with quality around every you know turn. You know, so so uh, exactly. that was yeah. that was that's what I wanted to hear. It was a good, uh, very good answer there, buddy. <laughs> hey, much pleasure. <laughs> wow. Hey, you know, we... it's, it's a it's a really uh, it's challenging. Producing is very challenging, but but I. I've, I thrive on on those challenges. So, well, you're comfortable now, yeah. Yeah, you're comfortable at it. It's good. Hey, I, I've now actually produced over 190 records. So I was going to say 150 because that's what you said to me the last time. So you've produced another yeah. 40 since I, then. I, I, I recounted <laughs> and I forgot a bunch of stuff. But yeah, it's around it's around 190. I I, I actually that's incredible. Uh, I was curious. Someone else asked me about how many records I thought, well, okay, let me let me look at this and and make kind of a, a serious wow. attempt to, to see how much work I've actually done. Because, you know, to be honest with you, I don't really think about that. I think about what's ahead of me. Um, sure. And right now I have a bunch of records I'm producing, and that's really where my focus is. Let's... Uh... Let's talk about that one gig that we did at the Troubadour, and we were playing with a oh, guy. Yeah. There was a guy. He was on Apple. He was the first artist produced by uh, the Beatles on Apple Records. Um, Jackie Lomax. Jackie Lomax. And do you remember what happened at that gig? Do you remember what happened? He was wearing green velvet pants. Who was wearing green velvet Jackie pants? Jackie Lomax was wearing green velvet pants. Do you remember what happened? <laughs> you know, that's... That, that, <laughs> his pants, I, I, his I, pants ripped, ripped. Oh, they ripped. In the back, right. his buttocks, it ripped so loud you could hear it right through the whole place. <laughs> You know, it was like a Laurel and Hardy skit, you know. And you and I, you and I were standing right behind him, and we were we couldn't even play. We were cracking up so much because here were these green velvet pants and this white underwear, you know. And he was up there trying to play and hold it together. Oh my God! I, uh, I, I thought you would remember, remember that. that. 
anyway, so there you go. That's my experience with Jimmy Haslip and Jackie Lomax. You know, the and, of course, and of course we we uh, I know you and I relish the fact that we did get to play at the Troubadour. Oh yeah, that was that was one of my favorite venues. I've done a lot of shows yeah. there actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I had. By the way, I just uh, just heard something about that because you know because of the situation we're under with COVID-19 businesses are dropping like flies. Okay. And, and, and it's been known that the Troubadour was really on the verge of just shutting their doors for, for good. And I think um, I heard through the grapevine that somebody uh, somebody well known actually came in and has rescued the troubadour. Um, so uh, hopefully that'll still be there. That's like a gallant. That's like a national monument at yeah. this point. You know? I did some incredible shows there. I, I, I was auditioning for Ahmed Erdogan. You know, uh, Atlantic. Oh wow! Yeah, he came to see a, an all original group that uh, I was in. You know, I think we rehearsed for about a year and a half. <laughs> I mean, all we were trying wow. to do, all we were trying to do, is get a deal with all this original music that we were playing. It was kind of like, yes, it was kind of, you know, structured uh, neoclassical rock music, and it was all, you know, it was very, very way ahead of its time. I think now that I think about it, it's like we were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But Amit Erdogan really liked us, but he didn't like our producer. <laughs> I wish you would have been oh, the producer. No. You know, I'm not going to say who well, it was. Yeah, I- but, uh, I think I would have got along with Almond Hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would have. But, uh, you know, this guy was recording us at the record plant, and we had all these great uh, demos, you know, and Almond Erdogan was very interested in our band, and he came to the Troubadour. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was something else. Uh, he, really, uh, he really liked us. Uh, and I don't know if he specifically went there to see us, but he was there the night we played, and then he spoke all this interest about what we had recorded and all this kind of stuff. So, anyway... That was something that happened at the Troubadour. Uh, can we talk a little bit about Alan? Uh, I'd really like to. Uh, sure. Just uh, I, I know that's a, another uh, tragic or soft, you know, area. It's a, t- that's a tough one. Yeah. yeah. So you you worked but with him I, for eight years, right? Some uh, before. Yeah, uh, more or less. I think. Um, yeah, somewhere between eight and ten years. We we played. It started out with a quartet. Uh, in tribute to the Tony Williams New Lifetime, which featured Alan uh, right. on guitar, Alan Pasqua on keyboards. Um, right. And then uh, Chad Wackerman on drums and myself. Um, and we went out and did like a month of gigs in Europe, and it was a, it was a total blast. We played a lot of the music from a record called Believe It. Okay. And, uh, and then also played some of Alan's other original music. And Alan Pasqua actually wrote some new things uh, just for the tribute. Uh, one song in particular, which was one of my favorites, was a song called Blues for Tony. And um, so uh, at, at a certain point when we got back from Europe, uh, we got hired to do a whole week at Yoshi's uh, up in Oakland, California, which is a really beautiful 
intimate jazz club, seats about 350 people, and uh, just a very comfortable venue. And to spend the whole week at the, at that venue is, is a luxury. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing. So um, Chad Wackerman had a relationship with a video company called Altitude Digital, which he did some educational DVDs with mm-hmm. and uh, talked to us about possibly filming and doing a DVD of a live gig, which we were all into doing. So uh, got in contact with Altitude Digital. They were totally psyched to do this. And they came up with like a eight man, nine man camera crew, uh, and uh, some audio folks guy that recorded us digitally uh, multi tracked, and we recorded. I believe it was four shows and filmed four shows and made a DVD, which was uh, basically called Alan. Hallsworth Allen Pasqua group featuring Chad Weckerman and myself uh, live at, uh, in Oakland at Yoshi's. Um, so uh, that came out, and then we went to Europe after that again and ended up with a bunch of like really cool board tapes from oh, yeah. all these different gigs. And Alan Pasqua kind of brought it to our attention that he listened to some of it and it was studio quality and there was some pretty blasting uh, performances and thought might be a good idea to put an audio disc out so we put out a double CD uh, with a small label that was run by Alan's manager called Moon June Records and it was a record called Blues for Tony. <laughs> wow. So we did the, that as a, uh, that and the DVD basically were tribute, tributed to Tony Williams, who uh, obviously we all admired. And uh, I got to see him. And, I got to see him at. Yeah. Uh, I got to see him at the Santa Monica Civic with uh, Chick Corea and Stanley Clark. So the three of them, oh, wow. the, th- the three of them were playing as a trio, and then uh, Al Jarreau came out halfway through the show, and yeah. he and he sang, and uh, be- before that it was opened by uh, Jeff Lorber. Um, you weren't the bass player oh, at the time, that- yeah. Uh, it was uh, Lester McFarlane was playing with uh, Jeff Lorber right. then. The fusion, the early fusion. Yeah, that's what they called it, the Jeff Lorber fusion. And then after that was a Larry Carlton's band with John Ferraro on drums. And, uh, wow. So that was a great show, but I got to see Tony Williams, you know. Of course, and, you know, I, I went there with a drummer, which was a mistake because he was acting like, a, you know, I mean, he looked like <laughs> he looked like a mosquito that was never going to land. You know, he was buzzing every cymbal crash every roll every you know drum beat was just like i mean tony williams was just amazing <laughs> he was he was an amazing musician yeah and, no, uh, his sound was so uh musical but it was a percussion instrument you know what i'm saying yeah, he like painted yeah. he painted pictures with his uh drums you know it was amazing yeah he did yeah absolutely 
that was that's the beauty of Tony Williams. Uh, and obviously, you, you hear it even when he was like 16 playing with Miles Davis. Yeah. On, uh, those those 60, 60s Miles records with uh, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, and and Wayne Shorter. Yeah, um, he was gifted. Uh, very gifted, yeah. Uh, so just to wrap it up with Alan. Um, yes. I mean, he was, to guitar players, he was very influential, right, um, in a big way, in a, in a, in a monstrous way. And some of those concerts, some of those shows that you must have done with him, you must have saw some of the, uh, you know, the idolization creep out of the audience where guitar players would come up and want to get backstage and just meet Alan Hallsworth. It must have been like a zoo sometimes, people that were, were wanting to meet him because he was such a great, uh, you know, ambassador for modern guitar, you know? Well, he was, he was beloved by his fans, um, there's no doubt about that. I saw that constantly. Yeah. Um, over the, you know, nine, eight, nine years that I worked with him. And he was uh, the most humble musician I'd ever worked with. Maybe even, I mean, uh, almost... Uh, O overly humble, <laughs> but I I respected that in him. You know, he he was such an amazing musician, and to be as humble as he was about it was awe awe inspiring. Um,
I was inspired by that every night. He was also, you know, he had a great sense of humor. He was a very uh, gentle soul, just a wonderful person. And, um, you know, I mean, like any anyone else you might meet that's uh, hugely talented and maybe dealing with other things that are uh, not visible on the surface. He had demons, and, you know, that's what eventually, uh, I think, ended his life. But, um, you know, I just, look, I, I just feel honored and humbled in my own way to have had an experience like that with, with him uh, night after night. Um you know, he he just he blew people's minds every night. Even and and even when I was playing with him, he was he was older. Um, I mean, I I played with him. He was I think when I started playing with him, he was in his early sixties. And you know, by the, by the last concert I did with him, he was he is already seventy years old. So, um, you know. Things were slowing down for him as a as a, uh, a person, but but he was still just amazing, like the the way he fluid. played music. He's still the fluid, way he, yeah. The way he heard music, his sound, his composition, the, the whole thing. So you know, and and obviously, um, I also figured out, and I've known this for forever, even before I played with him, but. You know, he's not every. He wasn't everybody's cup of tea, you know, because he was so advanced. You know, some people either they, they just didn't understand what he was doing, uh, and that was incomprehensible to people. So they would just dismiss it, like, "Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't get that music or whatever." Right, but, right. But that's 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 the way it is, you know. Um, I went to. Uh, I, I remember, I, I remember hearing something about uh, John Coltrane being inter, in, interviewed or reviewed records being reviewed, and and people just dissing John <laughs> Coltrane, saying, "Yeah, he can't play," you know. Yeah. But uh, that that was, um, you know, that happens. People don't always grasp what a musician like that is doing, and so. Their only recourse is to dismiss it. Um, yeah. But in, in Alan Hawthorne's case, uh, and any musician that, that has played with him would concur that he was a genius and he definitely changed the instrument in his own way uh, to the point where it's almost, it, it is almost uncomprehensible what he did, you know, how how he came up with. His style, he yeah. Against. He saved me a lot of times when I was having controversial discussions with people about correct fingerings on the guitar. Uh, I go, I go. If everybody played like that, we'd all sound like uh, you know a bunch of robots. If you think that's the only way to play that, why don't you watch a few Alan Hallsworth videos so you can see you know just how many different ways you can play one thing with different fingers. You know, it's like there there is no one way to play. You know, you don't have to no. use this finger. I mean, he he broke all those kind of barriers, you know, or all those kind he of did. yeah. 
everything yeah. everything was unconventional. Yeah. He had his he had his own rules. I got I got and, another uh, Alan Halsworth story for you, real quick. Uh, he was at a party uh, uh, down in the San Juan Capistrano area at a friend's house. He just happened to be there, right? And uh, they were playing a recording that he made, which was a lot of like straight ahead type of jazz type tunes. I don't know if you know about uh, the recording I'm thinking of. It was like a Charlie Parker type, you know, approach to uh, music, you know, more conventional jazz stuff. And I'm I'm listening to it, and I just look straight over, and I, and I point it, and I go, hey, this is like, I haven't heard you do this bebop, this kind of like... You sound like Charlie Parker here. You sound like just a, a sax guy blowing all these changes, you know. He got really, really excited about talking about that because to him that was like like a goal of his, I guess, was to be able to play the guitar just like a Charlie Parker or a Coltrane or somebody that could just blow changes and chops like that to up-tempo swing. And, man, he was just like totally into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a great. Well, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that, that was something that he aspired to, and and so many times he said, uh, "I I don't really, uh, I don't really connect with the guitar." He said he would say he said, "I wish I was a horn player." Yeah, um, yeah. That's what he heard in his head was more horn like, and actually, when you think about it. He started out at one point at a very young age playing violin. So uh, I think that was also in his head because he did a lot of like hammer-on type things, which is basically the technique for a, a violin. Yeah, you know? uh, sure. And and uh, he just applied that technique to the guitar. And it was a beautiful, <laughs> a beautiful way to approach the instrument. Have we got a little bit more time for one more uh, simple, sure, simple talk? We didn't, we didn't talk much about Robin Ford. Uh, he said something very interesting in a magazine review that I was reading um, about the uh, state of the blues. He thought blues, wow. he thought blues was more popular than ever, you know, and there were more places to play, and there were you know the, the audience was bigger than it's ever been. I don't know if that's true or not, but. Uh, Maybe I'm only saying that because a lot of the great blues legends have passed away, but uh, he seemed to think that, you know, blues was very, uh, very popular. You got a guy like Joe Bonamassa out there who's a, you know, forerunner of making making everybody's ears uh, stand up. So uh, maybe he's right about that. What do you what do you think of that? Well, I think there's something to be said about it. Um, it's it's definitely a, a popular genre. It'd be, Definitely more popular than than jazz in that respect. You know, jazz is really kind of a, a very tiny sliver in the, in the pie of music. Right. Um, blues, I think, would occupy a a nice chunk, a nice slice, uh, where jazz would be a sliver. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's what so I was. I think. Yeah. And, and you got guys like Robin out there, um, yeah. and Joe Bonamassa, and um, you know, there's there's a, a bunch of young guys even uh, out Johnny there. La Johnny Lang, Johnny Lang, he's fantastic, and I know he's got a, a, a big following. Um, there's the the um, uh, 
the Trucks Tedeschi group. Yeah, that guy's amazing. Uh, yeah, he's amazing, and and Susan Tedeschi is amazing as well. You know, mm-hmm. in her own right, as a singer and and a and a player, guitar player. So, um, you know, and it's always blues has always been a, a very popular genre uh, for as long as I can remember. You know, even with you know, go go back to like a band like Led Zeppelin. You know, that, course, that was yeah. to me like a a, a, a heavy duty. Uh, rock blues band, um, uh, and pretty cool band with Jimmy Page and and uh, Robert Plant, and, uh, John Paul Jones and John Bonham. So, yeah, I think uh, I think Robin's got a point, um, and of course he's he's an amazing musician, and I have spent a lot of time on and off playing with him. And, a variety of bands and uh, always a joy to play with him. Yeah, he's such a good musician. Um, yeah. Hey, I want to. You know, sorry, you're about to say. I was just going to say, you know, uh, he started the Yellow Jackets, so my hat's off to him for that because uh, that that was a giant member, chunk yeah. of, of my my career to this point. You know, being in that band for a long time, but also uh, we had two other bands with. We played together in a band called Jim Chi, which was a trio with Vinnie Colyuda, and, and a band called Renegade Creation, which was a quartet with Mike Landau on guitar as well, and Gary Novak on drums. And I, I also did a, a, a number of um, gigs and recordings with with Robin and his blues band. Um, which was always awesome as well. Yeah, um, full of energy. Yeah. 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 Hey, I really want to thank you for today. Uh, this was great. I, I really, for me, it's a big chunk of history because I've been following your career for so long. It's been really. Ex- oh, I appreciate that, It's been really John. exciting. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you, and of course, uh, you're you're always in my thoughts because we. We spent some time at Wilder Brothers. Yeah, we and, did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Those guys. They're not alive anymore, all three of them. My uncles. Uh, yeah. They were great. Yeah, really fun to yeah, hang out with. Yeah, that studio is gone too, right? Uh, no, I think my, uh, my cousin or uh, a nephew uh, took over it. Uh, I know he's not in the oh, same location anymore, but he, he took all the uh, you know the gear, which they had fantastic equipment there. And he uh, yeah. he started a studio uh, right around the corner. I, I think he still calls it the Wilder Brothers. But uh, oh, that's cool. But uh, yeah, no, that was a great hang. Yeah, I, I used to work in there and make cassette copies and sweep the floors, and that's where I got my, you know, got my professional uh, teeth cut. I guess. <laughs> hey, uh, I want awesome. I want to thank you and. Uh, Good luck to everything in the future, and hopefully this COVID thing will uh, end uh, with a good medical cure, huh? I I hope for that, and and I and I also hope that you and I can hook up and uh, play some more music. Well, I want to do I want to do that, yeah. As a friend of mine would say, I hope we do that before we turn to dust. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll turn we'll turn the studio into dust when we get there. <laughs> Should be fun. Let's get, let's stay in touch. Thanks. Yes, and thanks for having me uh, uh, today to talk with. Uh, yeah, pleasure.
total pleasure. Okay, thanks. We'll keep in touch. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. That was Jimmy Haslip. You've been listening to a Believe Podcast production. I'm your host, John Heusenstamm, and this is The Guitar Life. Thanks very much. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.